Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Thank you once again for tuning into Black Letter, the podcast. Today, we have with us by COVID-19 remote video, Ross Dunlap, my brother, the CEO of Series Nanosciences, and Dr. Ben Lapine, the chief scientist at Series Nanosciences. We're going to learn a little bit about Series Nanosciences, and not only as a startup biotechnology company and where they came from and how they got where they are today and what they do, but also what they're doing during this COVID-19 crisis and what kind of special uh, things they're doing to help and some of their exciting COVID-19 diagnostic products. Um, So with that, without further ado, Ross, let's start off with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to join Ceres and a little bit about Ceres. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me here. As you mentioned, I'm the CEO and one of the founding members of Ceres been with Siri since the beginning, which is now over 10 years. I was introduced by actually Tom, who's on the other end here, to the inventors of the technology at George Mason University. And together, we developed a business plan and built a business around an innovative technology called the Nanotrap technology. We'll tell you a little more about that. I have grown the company and, and pursued some really exciting areas in the life sciences industry, mainly in diagnostics. Before Siri, I was a management consultant with a very large global firm, Arthur Anderson, and then another firm, a local firm, Washington Consulting. My background before Ceres was working with other startups, uh, with other entrepreneurs, building businesses around new and disruptive technologies. So Ceres was a very exciting opportunity for me when it was presented. Since then, at Ceres, as you can imagine, my role as CEO of a startup is, is diverse. I wear many hats and have many roles, both strategic and tactical. My main goal or mission is to steer the company towards success in the market with their technology and, of course, financial success for our investors. Outside of Ceres, I'm I'm very involved in the life sciences community in Virginia and the broader capital area. I serve on several boards, including the George Mason Research Foundation and the Virginia Bio Association. On the personal side, I'm somewhat of a local, grew up mostly in Virginia, and I live currently in Washington, D.C., and I attend at the University of Virginia. So, well, well, thanks, Ross. Well, tell me a little bit about Ceres and kind of, I know that it has government grants. We do some of the work for you guys, but you also have a number of patents and you have a number of products that you sell. Can you just give our viewers a little bit of flavor and background about the biotech company and what biotech you do? Ceres Nanosciences, we're a privately held company. We're located in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, based out of Manassas. And our goal is to deliver our innovative technology. It's called the Nanotrap Particle. To commercialize this technology and deliver it to the market, to clinical diagnostics companies and laboratories and researchers. The technology 
is at its core designed to improve diagnostic testing and life sciences research. We can dig into the technology a little bit later, but to tell you more about the company, we're 20 people. We operate out of our labs in Manassas, and we have a lot of support from grants that fund targeted areas of, of development, as well as equity funding that support areas of product development where we see big opportunities in the market space. We are adapting our technology, our novel technology, to a range of diseases, testing applications. It's really a universal technology, so it lets us work across the industry. What we do is we don't deliver tests. We deliver a product that improves tests. It improves the ability of researchers to get the most value out of their research, as well as clinicians, clinical labs, and testing companies to get the most value out of their testing workflows. So they integrate our technology with their product, and they improve the accuracy and the sensitivity across infectious diseases, cancer, neurological disease, drugs of abuse, range of anything that can be detected in biofluids. We're developing some of our own products that we think are of great value. One of importance is liquid biopsy diagnostics device for cancer diagnostics. Most recently, we're we're putting a lot of effort and a lot of our resources into addressing the COVID-19 outbreak. And we have a ton of experience in detecting viruses. We have been working on a range of viruses for years. We have technologies ready to adapt to the COVID-19 challenge. And I look forward to telling you more about what we're doing specifically there as well. Okay, Dr. Lapine, or Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background with before series and then since joining series, and maybe a little bit about the science behind the technology and how you're adapting that to COVID-19. Going way back, I'll start with my undergraduate education was at Virginia Tech and really focused on polymer science, material science, and chemistry. And so I, I took that experience and went and worked with another startup company and where we over a few years grew from around three employees all the way up to 40. At that company, I was involved with the production and scale up of nanoparticle technology, basically optical coatings. Took that background and went back to graduate school and spent a couple of years working on a, at the time, it was a pretty novel program funded by the National Science Foundation where we worked across disciplines. So I had the opportunity to work in polymer science, but also on the biomedical sciences side of things. Through that program, we developed some drug delivery materials that were polymer-based and in a way very similar to what we're doing here at Ceres. So at the time when I started looking for other opportunities, I knew that you know I really loved that um, startup company mentality. Seeing a company grow from, from the beginning to a much larger stage was pretty exciting. I found this opportunity from Ceres that was looking for someone with a, a background that was very similar to what I had. You know, came up and met with the with Ross and and some of the original inventors of the technology, and was excited to to come to work for Series. And so that was, I would say, about ten years ago. Twenty twenty ten years later, and now I know you guys have worked for DARPA. You've worked for NASA. You've worked for well, tell me some of the others. You guys have done projects for a whole bunch of of Alphabet Soup government agencies. Yeah, so the foundation. DHS, 
DOD, DARPA. It's really exciting work with DARPA. And now we have some funding through NIH as well. And so what's the funding for NIH? Is that part of the COVID-19 funding or is that something different? So it's different. Yeah. One is focused on the HEAL initiative to help improve the detection of drugs for abuse. And then another one is uh, more focused on helping to make better materials for cell culture research. So for pharmaceutical companies and things like that. This is kind of a funny thing. So we're we're actually trademark counsel for NIH and I filed the HEAL initiative or renewed the HEAL initiative trademark for that research. Something like in the last, well, probably in the last year or two. Okay. But kind of funny. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're both working for the same client, <laughs> obviously in dramatically different ways. Yeah. Tell me now, guys, so we know kind of you have a nanoparticle and uh, I heard it once explained by, I think, by Alessandra or Varney, one of the other doctors who founded it as kind of like one of these children's toys that, can you describe what your principal product does in kind of layman's terms? Like what is the, the core technology? So, so I'll start. Um, and then Ross, maybe you can, you can add in. But really the core technology is that it's a tool that can capture very low abundance uh, biomarkers for a disease or condition out of a, a large volume blood sample or urine sample and concentrate it and remove unwanted interfering materials. And by doing this concentration, you can essentially improve existing assays for diagnosis. Without changing those downstream assays, you can improve their performance. So in other words, you couldn't see something before because it was there, there was too many things sticking to it, like albumin, or there was too, there were too many other things, or it was too diffuse, and you concentrate it and kind of clean up the sample and make the sample more valuable. You can detect more disease states or conditions or whatever it is. Is that yeah. roughly? Yeah, that's right. It's like the current analytes that are used for detection are below the limit of detection. So you could get a false negative. But with our technology, we're able to dig that needle in the haystack out and then able to detect it and get the, the, you know, the accurate diagnosis. Gotcha. So Ross, there was for a while a lot of storm and interest in a Lyme disease diagnostic, and you guys developed one. Is that right? That's right. So um, that was a very good uh, explanation of how the technology works, and the Lyme disease test is a good example of how we apply it to a product that is in demand in the market that patients need and where there's unmet uh, challenge. Lyme disease is one of those challenges where there were no really definitive, reliable diagnostic tests. The main reason being that the, the biomarkers related to Lyme were very hard to detect and capture. And our technology was a great fit for that. We applied it to it. We developed a test that used urine and enriched the Lyme antigen, so the actual direct agent that causes the disease out of a patient's urine sample and made it available for detection on a standard clinical lab test. Okay. One that was tailored to Lyme disease. That's one instance. How we get our technology to the market is by adapting it to challenges that our customers have, be they big clinical labs, companies that produce tests or researchers in academia or in the government. They all have challenges with particular diseases, infectious diseases, cancers, others. They're looking for solutions, technologies that they haven't tried before that could solve their problems. Our 
technology has been a really good fit for many of these cases. And where it becomes a real exciting commercial product is when it's a big need and where there's a big market and there's a lot of patients that really need better testing in the space. So we can turn it into a highly reproducible uh, version of our research product and, and get it out there. We can put it into kits. We can incorporate it into devices. Or we can sell it in uh, bulk to companies that then integrate it into their own product. Lyme disease is a great example of one area where we developed a test, and now we're working to adapt our technology to COVID-19. The COVID-19 challenge, obviously, I've heard there's an issue potentially with false positives or false negatives, one of the two or both? False negatives. False negatives. And those are, that's where it, it can cause the most challenges. A false negative being a person who actually has the disease, but the test tells them that they are negative uh, and then they can go on to infect others. One of the biggest challenges so far is is not so much the tests don't work well, it's it's how the samples are collected. And there's some other challenges for sure. I'll, I'll let Ben describe a little more about what our team is doing specifically to address this. But at a high level, we had already developed an application, in fact, a commercial kit for virus capture, and we released this product last fall. Wow. Uh, obviously not anticipating that this outbreak would come about, but we had done a lot of work in viral outbreaks over the years. We, we did our, our first uh, big work with um, Ebola, the Ebola virus, when that outbreak happened, and we received some Gates funding to apply our technology to adapt a blood-based test to work with saliva. Following that, we did work with Zika. And in between, we've done work with many other viruses. But this is by far, I think, the most significant one we face. Obviously, it's scary, but we're really excited about what our technology can do for that. And Ben, maybe you can offer a little more detail on on what we're doing specifically, what the funding we have is, and how we're applying that. Yeah, Ben, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the the exciting science-y part? Just to echo what Ross said, I think there's a lot of tests out there that are probably pretty good, but some cases where you have poor sample quality or maybe an asymptomatic patient or a healthcare worker at early infection time points, there is a need for improved sensitivity. The way we do that is, as we've already shown with our virus product, is that if you simply add it to these transport medias where the swabs are stored, you can capture all of the virus in that sample and then concentrate it and then run some of those emergency use tests. We have a workflow already set up to do that. We're refining that workflow and demonstrating compatibility through some funding that we have jointly with George Mason University from the Eric Schmidt Foundation. And so that funding is really allowing us to accelerate this work and focus on and really really develop solid methods that we can deploy. How far away is your test from being deployable? And when it's ready, where does it get deployed? Who gets that test? We're very close. We have data with other coronavirus strains, and now we're working with cultured virus. As soon as we get data with true clinical samples for verification, then we would be ready to start working with either testing companies or laboratories. It would be a matter of getting those clinical samples, getting that data and starting to get the nano traps out there. Okay. Yeah. Out of clarification, yeah. Tom, is 
we're not delivering a test so much as a critical component of the broad testing infrastructure. Are particles adapted to capture this coronavirus strain could be used in any laboratory test or with any lab testing company's manufactured test. Uh, it's universal in that application. So it's exciting because it could offer uh, the, that value of better sensitivity to any and, and every COVID-19 test I see. Uh, that's being deployed. And there are many. There are dozens that have been developed and approved already and, and more to come for sure. Just from a layperson's perspective, what your product does, what the NanoTrap does, is it captures and preserves the sample in ways that these tests aren't always able to do. And that's what's resulting in the false negatives. It's not necessarily the test, but it's the sample capture and preservation. And you're able to do that and hand them good analytes, essentially good. That's right. It's, it's the front end. So it's the front end of the testing workflow. Gotcha. Um, much like for some of your audience who's more familiar with information technology, your output and your reporting is, is only going to be as good as the data that goes into it. So our nanotrap particle technology is, in essence, capturing better data, refining that data, and making it available for output in the form of a test. Gotcha. And you guys have already done this for Ebola, you've done this for Zika, and you've done this for a really hard one, Lyme, which I know is a hard analyte to capture. And I think there was even, I, I read about, and I was somewhat involved with the human growth hormone analytes, the isoforms you guys were capturing for those, which are really hard to detect, the exogenous forms. Let me ask Ben, is there anything else about series that our viewers should know or anything, any other kind of advice you have as a scientist for a biotech startup company, having been in multiple biotech startup companies and in the space for, for decades now, your whole career, what would you say to other startup guys who are science guys who are like, I want to be in that space? What, what's your advice? Okay, great question. Early on in the process, you've got to be flexible and you've got to obviously be able to rapidly adapt the technology that you're trying to develop into products. Go where, where the market pushes you uh, or pulls you along. So you can develop products that hit, can hit the market quickly. Very different than traditional research side where, or product development in a larger company when you have longer time periods to develop products. It's just critical to to move things on as fast as reasonable. So your goals then, your advice is the goal should be set by what the market telling you the goals need to be as opposed to, we're going to do this thing and carry it to the death's end. Really, it's what does the market need right now that our product can do? That's right. And you've got to be ready to pivot quickly. If, if you find that there's another application that you're better suited for, you've got to be ready to make that change. And sometimes it's a hard decision, but you've got to be ready to do it. So that's kind of what Ceres did with human growth hormone testing and then Lyme testing and then the virus and capture kits. I mean, you guys are kind of the epitome of that. Is that right? I, I think so. But the, the virus capture kits, we've been developing that product and refining it over the past few years. And so that one huh? I think has remained one of, our, one of our lead products. Can I ask you now, are your kits being used, your virus capture kits being used by any government agencies or any versions of those? Are they deployed right now in other mediums? Yeah. So we, we have a group that presented back in February on some work that they're doing at the CDC, where they're using our technology to improve their ability to identify 
novel strains of influenza in animal samples. And okay, yeah, so this is the influenza surveillance group. They're doing some really exciting work, but they go out in the field and collect samples and they process those with nano traps and collect results overnight. If they identify new strains, they can immediately start vaccine development. That's one great application for our technology, and we're really excited to see those results. That's, that's great. So that's one of those things where you're, you're the business that you're doing, you're doing well, but you're also doing good, because that really, that's a, a humanity-preserving thing, right? The CDC finding influenza strains and developing vaccines early, because yeah. we had that here with this coronavirus. Maybe we wouldn't be where we are today, sitting at, well, I'm in the office, you're in the office, but a lot of us are sitting at home. Nobody's here with me, by the way, at the office. It's just me on four stories of building, which is, it's nice, it's quiet. So there's a bright side. So Ross, as somebody who's been with the company since the get-go from getting funding, and then I understand you, I was involved a little bit in getting venture money and then just growing and changing the company as it's gone along. What's your advice? For people who are looking to do a startup biotechnology company, which I believe is significantly different than a startup tech company or a startup products company. Hey, yeah, very different, Tom. You're right. Many lessons learned. I'll highlight the top ones. And absolutely, starting up a company in the life sciences space is incredibly daunting. Uh, it's challenging. The timelines are much longer. The risks are higher. But I think as you hinted at, Tom, uh, the rewards are really great because what we're doing is, is something that could significantly improve the health of patients globally. Um, you know, we've worked in, in global disease areas like tuberculosis, malaria, Ebola, and now COVID-19. And if we can help improve even just by a little bit the way that our healthcare systems respond to these outbreaks, it really, it feels good. And it's exciting to be part of that. And so getting to my lessons learned. I will echo, and, and it was at one of the top of my list of lessons learned is being dynamic. As an early stage company, it's a dynamic world. Markets change quickly, resources change quickly, and all this has a big impact on what you're able to do. So you need to be able to constantly monitor all of these changes and how it affects your company and your strategy, and be ready to pivot if you need to reassess what your strategy is and tune it to the best path forward. So that's one key lesson learned. And the second lesson learned is, and this may seem obvious, but, but you see a lot of companies fall into the trap of not hiring the right people for the company, especially early on. Okay. Um, so getting the right people, the best people. As a small company, each hire has such a significant impact, right. um, not just on the success based on their technological ability, but based on how they work, kind of how they affect the culture of your company, you know, making sure that you hire people who are smarter than you, people who have more experience than you, and making sure that they fit in well with your company's culture and they understand your company and how you do business and, and how you should treat each other. Um, and the third point I'll make, and I'll, I'll finish it with this, critical for a startup company, especially one in the life sciences space is become very good at budgeting and understanding where your cash will come from in the next six months, in the next year, and so on. Okay. Uh, that is the number one thing at the top of my list of concerns and opportunities that I focus on is 
how to manage cash flow, understanding where we're spending our money, not being afraid to apply money where we need it, but also knowing how to replenish the coffers, um, be it through equity funding, through grant funding, and hopefully um, by growing revenues from selling your product. But most companies in our space, we won't see revenue for the first three to five, sometimes eight years or longer, just because of the timeline that it takes to validate and get a technology to the market. So really being good at budgeting and being prepared to raise more money. Gotcha. So if I were to summarize, your number one point, Ross, is managing money and budgeting because biotech is expensive and challenging. And then both of you share the point that you have to be ready to pivot and move your product to the market as opposed to, to moving the market to your product, which is impossible in biotech. And then the third point you made, Ross, is to hire people like Ben. Um, <laughs> exactly. Hire ben smart ben was our first hire. Ben was the first hire, and um, we've since brought on team members of all skill sets. Each one has added incredible value to the company and has been the reason for our success. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys both. I don't want to hold you up anymore. Get back to researching and solving COVID-19, relying on you. And so so is the world, partly, right? Along with all the other companies that are putting in efforts. Thanks both for joining us. So I want to thank uh, the Black Letter audience again for joining us for this podcast and videocast. Download the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, or the Android Play Store. Join us on the YouTube channel as well. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on the Black Letter Show. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com. 